Listener discretion advised by the sound contains salty language. So if you don't like that, turn it down now. No, now, like right now. Okay. Let's start this fucking show. (laughs) Okay. We're just going to leave that there. (laughs) I need to stop touching shit. What if we just call it good enough? Can we do that? Can Let's we say dismantle this is functional? white supremacy culture and not go for perfectionism and call it good enough. This is good enough. Everything is it. functional. You could do it. You have it Thank you, them. women of color, for coming into my life and giving me permission. <laughs> okay. We <to laughs> okay. just needed a couple of magical Negroes. Yeah. You did. <laughs> Thank you. You did. You did. You wore your bagger Vances. <laughs> bagger Vanessas. <laughs> That was, good, that was funny, that though. That was good. That was good. <laughs> I saw what you did there. From the Coast Salish land of Seattle, we're By the Sound, your community-invested podcast. Each episode, we speak with the brightest minds from Seattle and the Pacific Northwest. We discuss art and pop culture, as well as local news and politics. I'm Sarah May, sitting this week with Chelsea Alvarez and Aisha Hauser. This week, I meet with writer, director, and researcher Barbara Klabitz. We'll talk about the role gender plays in the effects of climate change. She'll also tell us about the use of prison labor in sustainable seafood production. But first, Aisha Chelsea and I will talk about what our response should be when anti-trans hate groups rent public spaces. This is By the Sound. Aisha? Yes. How are you doing? How am I? Um... I'm trying not to argue with white people online on Martin Luther King Day. And I'm, I'm, I mean, that's the reason for this season, isn't it? <laughs> it's so here. So I feel good. And I just want to communicate to folks that there is no common ground between me and someone who thinks it's perfectly reasonable to cage children, ma- expand mass incarceration, criminalize the poor and a host, whole host of other dehumanizing policies and law. I'm not interested what, what ground are we talking about? I mean, but don't you think if you could just bridge the divide and just come together That's and a have a to civil conversation, if you could just sit down at a table together and just have a cow a cow There's people who are watching. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's exactly it. It sounds like yeah. the adults in Charlie Brown when I hear that. <laughs> 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 but relationships. <laughs> But this is why this country has never moved forward in a substantive way and stayed there. Because the comfort of white people takes all precedence. Yeah. That's how I am. I'm wanting wanting to tell the people who think they're on the side of justice, this is uncomfortable. And you will have to make others uncomfortable to center liberation. Period. Full fucking stop. Here's the thing that I'm wondering... Can a person actually understand what it would mean or look like or feel like to center liberation if their liberation has been centered their entire life? Mm. Like, do you see what I'm saying here? Yeah, so it's easy to think it's about feelings when you've never been, when your humanity has never been in question. Yeah. 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 So I'm frustrated on this Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Day. Well, what stands out to me there is, one, if, if people are putting you through all this labor on your own Facebook wall, this is problematic. This is, 
<laughs> I could choose not to engage. So part of it is me engaging. Yeah, what are you what are you getting out of this? Um, what am I getting out of it? That's a very good question. Because like I I personally one of my settings is cheerfully combative. Mm. And I do enjoy some conflict. I do enjoy either cheerfully or not so cheerfully telling people to shut the fuck up. That feels good to me in my yeah. body. That feels good. I get something out of that. It's not always like the healthiest thing or like the right thing to do, but like I enjoy it. I think a model, here's what I'm getting out of it. A lot of people read my wall. I take that indicative of how many likes or not likes are there. So I'm not saying that to blow smoke up my own ass. Um, So I think for me, it's naming for other folks. Like a lot of times I actually ignore comments that are annoying, but every now and then I'm like, I'm not going to ignore this. Yeah. Because my point is being lost and sometimes I do want, especially I think I think the reason is it's going into an election season, mm. um, and this notion of what we even mean by common ground needs to be clear to people. So it's modeling for other, or at least saying to other folks reading the dialogue, yes. here's where I'm clear. I have clarity yep. that there's no such thing as common ground. You can you can be BFFs with whoever the fuck you want to be. Know that that's not leading anywhere except you feeling good and you being BFFs with whoever you want to be. That's not going to lead to systemic fucking change. Yeah. That's uh, my point. Yes. The, the, the audience is, uh, the audience may be open to some sort of uh, input. I would like to speak to white people for a second. Please. <laughs> Somebody has to. Um, I believe uh, what was being talked about, um, with Asia's frustrations has to do with a lot of labor you're doing, emotional labor on your own Facebook wall to deal with white people's uh, discomfort. Mm-hmm. Um, Asia shouldn't have to do that. However, this does not get white people off the hook for doing that, like with each other, because, you know, we have people in our families, we have people who are confused, who need to grow. And Sometimes there are people that are only going to listen to you, (laughs) white person. Um, And, you know, it may be baby steps, moving them leftward. And if you do that, then women of color will not have to. Does that work, though? Does it work? What work? Can white people be gathered? Is this a thing? Like, everybody's like, oh, gather your cousins. White people gather each other. But, like, does that work? Maybe not in the plural. (laughs) 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 Like, as a group, like, you know, white people are no more a monolith than any other racial group. But on the individual level, yeah. Great. Cool. I don't really care how people personally feel. What we need to do is folks who claim, talking to you white liberals, to want a more just and equitable society, go out and fucking vote that way, fucking support legislation and laws that we still apparently are somewhat useful still in this country to create a more equitable system, um, create have go on the boards of education and create more equity. I mean, there are things that substantively can happen structurally that need to happen that, and then you could fucking never talk to a person of color if you don't want to. Like, I don't get, like, I, I think we're having, <laughs> yeah. I don't, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't, cause I don't think it's about how white people feel. 
That's how I am, Sarah. How are you? <laughs> um, uh, God, you know, I don't want to deal with white people's feelings either, but I feel like I should um, mm-hmm. yeah. so that, you know, other people won't have to. I am uh, feeling a bit emotionally exhausted by the subject of uh, our news segment today, but yeah. I'll leave that for later. It's just this, um, you know, situation with the Seattle Public Library. And, but otherwise, like, you know, I'm good. I'm, 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 um, I see a therapist every week so that I don't have to dump all that kind of shit on mm-hmm. people like y'all. So we might cut a bit closer to the edge today. <laughs> you guys are looking at me like you're going to ask me how I'm doing. Who knows how I'm doing? It's a mystery. Chelsea is a ticking time bomb. I am. I haven't had a therapist for the last uh, six months. I've just been raw dogging. <laughs> wow. It's rough. It's getting a little. It's getting a little wild in the brain. Uh, I found a really good therapist. This is a fucking unicorn therapist. She is. A queer, black, larger-bodied woman uh, in the South End and had a slot open for me, but it's uh, it doesn't work with my work schedule. And surely she wouldn't take your insurance, right? She doesn't take insurance. Uh. No, that would that, that's too fun. That's too fun. <sighs> That's your unicorn bar is a bit low, I think. You're talking dragon bar, Sarah. That's a unicorn. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking dragon and yeah. Game of Thrones shit and walking around with an egg that's totally mystical. Yeah. So she's not she's not a like mystical unicorn. egg. She's not a mist she's a unicorn, like yeah. regular, real. Like I mean, real I'm thing. I'm willing to pay five hundred dollars a month for that therapist. Mm. Uh I had a white therapist for a while and one time I was really fucking exhausted and was railing about white male mediocrity and you know I I with my many intersecting identities have to like work super hard and blah 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 blah, blah. and I was yelling basically and this woman uh got out a bottle of lavender essential oil dead ass unscrewed the cap and just sort of started like waving it at my face <laughs> This panicked expression. She thought you were going to hit her. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wow. I think I had maybe like two more sessions with her. And I was like, this is not the one. I thought you were going to say she shushed you. White women love to shush me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, she didn't shush me. Um, No, but she came close. Well, so the there was oil in your face is and that something second. and that's something she really needed me to calm the fuck down <laughs> <laughs> you know i would I, it would be a little snl skit comet comedy to know what was going on in her head yeah <laughs> like, i mean i like, saw it in her eyes it was sheer panic it was just utter panic could not sarah chelsea when you say that By the Sound is a community-invested podcast, what 
what does that mean for our listeners? Ah, glad you asked. It means that in addition to hearing our conversations about local issues and interviews with our most interesting Seattle area neighbors, fans of the show can join our listener community online by supporting the podcast on Patreon. Doing so will unlock access to our private Facebook group. What are we posting in the Facebook group? (laughs) Well, in addition to exclusive previews about what we'll be discussing on the show, we offer a curated stream of the best and most provocative local news stories each day. That's dope. How much will it cost to join? Our online community membership is available to all patrons starting at $5 per month. How else can fans of the show invest in this community? Our supporters on Patreon who contribute $10 or more per month will receive exclusive invitations to buy the sound meetups at Seattle area coffee shops, bars, and parks, where they could meet by the sound co-host, guests, and other local fans of the show. Sweet. Where should listeners go to donate? They can visit buythesound.net and click on the donate button. That's buythesound.net. Or go directly to patreon.com slash buythesound. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash by the sound. Um, where to begin? The Seattle Public Library has some meeting spaces, including one large auditorium. There is a traveling group of TERFs, which stands for um, Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminists. Um, I am a trans woman. Trans-exclusionary radical feminists, first of all, are not feminists. They're, they're, TERFs are feminists in the same way that like Republicans are the party of Lincoln. Like There may have been something there at some point in some context, but the world has moved on. Right. That's a good description, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, it's, it's a really kind of outdated belief system, and I was very disappointed to see they'd be having this meeting because, you know, they've been rather quiet since the beginning of 2017, since, I'd say, you know, a rebirth of women's movements. So I I was surprised to see them coming out of the woodwork. TERFs have played a very destructive role in my life, and TERF ideology, detached from any association with the word feminist, has played a a destructive role in my life. TERFs have taken years off of, you know, my life having gender transitioned at 35. I feel like I lost years of liberation. And, you know, it's a struggle not to be angry about it. Yeah, of Um, course. But they are losing any relevance. And had they shown up, say, in 2015... Then a, a small handful of trans folks would have, you know, thrown a fit in various ways and been ignored by the cisgender uh, left in Seattle. But this is a different time now. Anti-fascism is very stalwart and um, out there. Uh, literally in the streets, meeting various forms of fascists when they come to Seattle to to troll people. This would include numerous uh, alt-right appearances at um, the plaza in front of our uh, city hall. So these mostly older white men show up to make a, a show of their their hate and to make a show of their tacky American flag clothing. And, uh, you know, s- people associated with anti-fascist movements show up to uh, yell in their general direction and 
yell at police, all of which can, you know, probably be very therapeutic, though dangerous. It, it seems like a very male undertaking to me. But in, anyway, so TERFs have impacted my life. I am a trans woman. I've spent about half of my life working in libraries as a library employee. And also, libraries are the places where I've made some of the biggest steps towards my trans liberation because of the books. Um, now, younger people might not know. There are these 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 bound things. <laughs> oh man, we didn't always have Kindles. <laughs> there are these places. They're called the stacks. They're rows of books. Um, and uh, you know, when I was in college, you know, I remember going to, you know, waiting till an hour when I knew no one would be around, and going to that particular shelf in the library where I worked. And there were three books, uh, books that would be banned um, by people who are intolerant. And it was then when I, you know, say, read the word transgender for the first time. It was there where I learned that, oh, I can be attracted to women and have these complicated gender issues, because apparently it happens all the time based on some survey that was done in 1985. Um, it, it, I had very little to work with, but it was a lifeline. Mm. It was huge. And I there in college felt like I should take on some responsibility. And uh, so I started telling my friend, my friends about this and started telling them basically that I was a closeted cross-dresser and that it was therapeutic, that it helped me reset myself and make things right. So I'm grateful to libraries for that. Libraries also happen to be the reason I'm an atheist because of the information. So I come at this whole issue from a number number of different perspectives, and I'm not going to describe turf ideology. If if one of y'all want to try, you can. I'm going to put in the show notes a video by Natalie Wynn at ContraPoints where she just she's like trans Jesus. She's she hmm. she <laughs> she's great. The thing about trying to explain mm-hmm. turf ideology though is that it's nearly impossible because it doesn't make any fucking sense. It's rooted. In the denial of someone else's truth. And humanity. And humanity. And in order to do that, the amount of like the mental contortions that you have to pull off to come up with a justification for that kind of ideology, it I've never seen any turf argument that didn't devolve into utter fucking nonsense. Well, it's a form of supremacy. It's yeah. bullshit. It's it's supremacy, and we'll let the trans Jesus explain it in the show notes. I don't think we need to give it any more airtime. And airtime is something, you know, I was super reluctant to bring this topic on the show because one, one of the disappointing things about seeing that they would show up here in Seattle in 2020 um, is knowing that there would be backlash and the backlash would amplify this dying, withering on the vine group. And it's like if they just showed up and had their sad little meeting and, you know, said shitty things, could they come and go and go home and feel shitty about themselves? And then will the rest of us just go on with the the city we're, we're trying to build? I don't want to amplify their ideology. So we'll leave that there. One thing I'll say about TERFs is I've spent a ton of time reading their stuff. 
it was something I had to overcome. And and then at some point became more of an anthropological issue and something (laughs) something I've discovered and Natalie Wynn points this out is they're hurting. Like something I find they have in common is that they have been hurt by someone who wasn't trans in the most, for the most part, like what they're doing is hurting uh, as a verb. And they've, they've created a worldview that establishes order to help them deal. And transgender women like me pose a level of complexity that, you know, uh, shakes this, this order. When they're appearing at SPL, um, Seattle Public Library, they reviewed the matter and uh, decided it would be best to push them back to uh, a later time in the evening when, you know, there wouldn't be a presumption of uh, trans people working at the library. Hopefully, hopefully those trans people will have other opportunities at overtime, if that's a factor here for enabling, you know, this event in in the meeting space. But government um, secured free speech is not consequence free. And so some people are going to want to show up and tell them how they feel. When is it, Sarah? When is the event? Yeah. I don't know if I want to ever like, I'm serious. I mean, I think... I don't I don't imagine that someone listening to this is going to show up to support them. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's likely that someone listening to this would like to show up to yell at them. Somebody might. And if that is is healing for them, then that makes a lot of sense to me. I believe it is on February 1st um, at the Central Library in the evening, I think at seven. But, you know, Gender Justice League has the details. If one is considering devoting time and expense to this. And I'd ask them to also consider supporting trans people in our community um, who are creating art, who are entrepreneurs. I mean, yeah, you can drive downtown and pay for parking and, and give hours of your life to telling the turfs to fuck off. I think it's important mm-hmm. to tell fascists of all stripes to fuck off. Mm-hmm. I think... That if they want to show up, it's important for other people to also show up and say, hey, we're not doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. Do please fuck the fuck off. Um, I just want to say I'm extremely disappointed in Seattle Public Libraries for deciding to let this event take place at any time of day. I don't have the compassion that Sarah does <laughs> in this instance. Uh and I absolutely 100% believe that free speech should not come at the expense of the humanity of our neighbors. I, I, I'm hurt and saddened and angered that uh our public library system has decided to um allow an event uh, that is a, a a hate group I, that that they're they allowing a definitely hate, a hate group, group to um have any sort of voice uh it it's it's heartbreaking 
And it also goes to what we were talking about before about this idea of common ground and somehow we have to listen to sides. You don't have to listen if no, it's fucking stupid. There's people. no You don't have to listen sides. to these people. That's you exactly there's right. No, no, there's no sides. Like if someone has a stupid, <laughs> fucked up, bad idea, we don't have to listen to it. We don't 100%. have to give them a venue. We don't have to amplify their voice. Like that, that is... Oh, we're in the same page with that. And that's my point is that there is, uh, there are boundaries that are, that will center liberation. And one of those boundaries is not to give airtime to people who deny the humanity of others, period, full stop. And that is when we're talking about gender, when we're talking about race, when we're talking about sexual orientation, when we're talking about um, immigration fucking status. There, that we, we have no excuse in 2020, human beings, with the technology and how far, I mean, how far, I put that in quotes right now, um, we think we've come, we have no excuse to continue to deny the humanity of anyone. So if you're uncomfortable with someone who's trans, work that shit out. That's on you. Don't Word. write books. Don't go out and lecture. Talk to your fucking therapist. Talk to your, go find a therapist. Tell them how afraid you are. I do believe what I'm what I'm finding is folks who've experienced trauma and are centering their own fear um there hasn't been enough challenge to name that it's like look mm, whatever your mm-hmm. issue is whether it's like it's like the 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 men the white men in congress who are clearly fucking gay who get caught mm. in bathrooms who are arguing for and homophobic legislation yeah well you are you are afraid of who you are yeah yeah and and guess what? Affirming other people's humanity, you can affirm yourself, bruh. Like, you will help yourself. <laughs> and so people who are centering their trauma, and it is, I, I can have compassion as a trained social worker, as someone who's in the faith community. I, I try to find the humanity in others and have compassion. And I set a boundary. It's like, you know what? Compassion without boundaries is enabling. The, high five. Chelsea Alvarez. That's therapist. not a new, that's uh, Caroline <laughs> Contillo, yeah. a meditation teacher in New York and yes. true genius. Yes. Or actually, I think she's teaching guitar now instead of meditation, but you know, same diff. Hmm. So um, I'm, I want to honor you, Sarah, and tell you that I love you. And you, ha- you have had quite a journey and you still, we're all still on a journey and you know, fuck anybody who makes you feel less than a hundred percent whole and loved. So fuck everybody who, who does that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's sweet. Um, you know, I, I think they are denying my humanity and I think SPL made the right call because, uh, that same room was used by our first guest, uh, Amelia Bono. So mm. I, I learned all about shout your abortion mm. This event was not controversial in in any way because we're Seattle. This is our home. This is our living room. And unlike the TERFs, she wasn't taking a shit in our living room. Because those TERFs are not from Seattle, right? No. They're they're, 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 they're a roving band of TERFs. Oh, for fuck's sake. They're traveling TERFs. And because our laws in the U.S. are such that... They can be deplatformed from private spaces and often are. So they've come to rely on mm. public libraries as a place they can't be deplatformed from. And I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but it seems legit to me. And I want someone like Amelia Bono or someone like Natalie Wynn to be able to go to like fucking Wichita 
And, you know, if, if someone like that has the fortitude to withstand the crowds, withstand the community backlash, then the civic institution, the publicly funded civic institution should not be one of the barriers to that appearance. Because I think we win the battle of ideas. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like if you, let's see, Turf's invented the term gender, gender critical. And if you go on YouTube and you search gender critical, first video to show up, is Natalie Wynn. Like, she claimed it. Oh, good. I literally um, never heard that term. And she okay. claimed it because she's winning with her ideas, which are yeah. righteous. So yeah. I would like, though, something like this arose at the University of Washington around Inauguration Day in, in oh, 2017. Yeah, when, when Milo Yiannopoulos showed up and somebody mm-hmm. got shot. Uh-huh. See, this is the thing. Like, I respectfully disagree, Sarah. I file this under fire. I uh-huh. file Turfs under fire. I file Milo Yiannopoulos under fire. I file Proud Boys under fire. I think that they should be deplatformed. I think that it is the responsibility of Seattle Public Libraries to say, this is hate speech and we will not have it. Wichita is going to do what Wichita is going to do. I do not agree that we have to allow this in order to guarantee freedoms for people who are not yelling fire in the crowded theater of 2020. Mm -hmm. So the question then becomes like what defining the fire and the gender justice league um, has, you know, sent to the mayor and the city council and the public library board, a list of requests. I I don't know if they call them demands, whatever It, 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 it includes among other things like having trans consultants and having like a trans advisory board to look at I, I think it was groups that would be renting spaces and to review books. Um, Did they rent the space? Did they rent the space? Or the turf. Yeah. Yeah. It's a rented space. Oh. Yeah. It's it's not yeah. And the, that's part of the library's I, argument. They're like, well, we're not promoting this. They're just yeah. renting the space. But honestly, oh. I don't fucking care. I don't think that they well, should be they allowed space. would they rent it space. to the KKK or white nationalists? I mean, would they? Would they say... That's the question. I don't know. I mean, they have Well, it. I thought the Skokie, Illinois case said they had to. Oh, okay. You um, might be right. They, I did not read Skokie. Sometimes I laws are wrong. Briefs, I, don't, I don't think yeah. that... I don't, oh, no. We've had lots of laws on the books that are yeah. wrong. Slavery was legal. Hello. Uh, it's... Hello. I believe it's still legal to rape your wife in plenty of places. Like, uh-huh. some mm-hmm. laws are wrong. I don't give a fuck what the law says. And the United States is is strange in, you know, the protection of speech or in European countries. There's nothing unusual about, say, you know. The Nazis lost and Germany said, okay, cool, we're done with that. Uh-huh. We're not doing that. Done. Somebody pipes up about that shit and they're fucking done. Done. Not doing that in America is one of the hugest mistakes we ever made. The South lost. Was I talking to you about this? We were talking about this in the car. Was this like yesterday? The South lost and got elected to Congress. Yeah. The Confederates. They were not outlawed. No. No, we're still arguing. They got monuments. And here the fuck we are. Yep, and here we are. Because we center fucking comfort. Who's comfort? White people. (laughs) YT. Did you just look at me and call me YT? I'm saying the letters YT because on social media lately I've seen instead of people spelling out W H I T they're they're writing Y T. Yeah, because you'll get shadow banned or, oh, or you'll no! get 
uh, actual band. Can we agree Mark Zuckerberg's a fucker? He's up there with yeah, um, he's a fucker. Bezos. I think it's so it's important for us to um have standards and boundaries around what will because people say well where's the line oh i'll tell you the line does it take away from someone's humanity yes then the answer is you can't be here like to me it's it's not really we're overthinking it this notion that you're allowed in quotes to do and say what you want under the guise of freedom and freedom and well and it's not a thing in the whoo we can go down the rabbit hole of how many people really are not free in this country. So let's, let's be clear that even the words freedom are, um, there's a hierarchy of who gets to claim that for in reality. Mm -hmm. So you'll sometimes hear the term, uh, uh, free market of ideas and which is bogus, right? A hundred percent. Um, it, cause, uh, there are commercial forces at work. Um, now, Libraries are thought to be a a space for free idea, free free speech. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so Gender Justice League is calling for you know a, a panel to review books and um, or and consultants to re- review books and review groups that are allowed to be there and um, you know God help them in their charge. <laughs> but uh, uh, it is. Similar in structure, I believe, to something that was proposed in Missouri this week about banning material that could be car- harmful to children, like a, uh, that there would be panels to review books that could... Like per- Skippy John Jones? Who's Skippy John Jones? Skippy John Jones is a series of books about uh, a chihuahua with like a fake Mexican accent. Uh, wildly racist children's books. Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. Can we ban uh, that? I think that would be an example of something that would harm children and uh, probably would not be banned Can by we ban Fancy panel. Nancy, too? Uh, I want I, fancy, I, I want fancy You have Nancy. sons. Did you get Fancy Nancy? <laughs> no. Fuck Fancy Nancy. There's a Fancy Nancy book where she says... Uh, in the presence of her black best friend, that brown is an ugly color and it's too plain. <sighs> Fuck you, Fancy Nancy. Fuck Fancy Nancy. Well, that's not just offensive. That's wrong on the merits. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's just go down the list. It's just incorrect. It's just incorrect. What else can we ban? Um, can I give them a list of children's books to ban? You, yeah. It's long. I mean, well, okay. At this point in Missouri, it's just a bill in the legislature. And, and this is one of the things about legislatures. Any piece of trash can drop any piece of trash bill in the hopper. And then you have, you know, material with which to troll people through the media. You know, which is one reason we face bathroom bills. And like, I think right now before uh, uh, the Washington legislature is a, a bill to ban trans girls from participating in girls athletics that is before the washington legislature right now so anyway what one point i want to circle back to that we were talking about the equal rights amendment on our last show one thing that would do is the the fire you're you're mentioning um it would raise the interpretation of that fire to a stricter scrutiny on par with the First Amendment. So structurally in the law, this could be progress towards, you know, less Nazis marching in Skokie, Illinois. 
Um, okay, but like, and then it gets challenged, and it goes to the current Supreme Court, mm-hmm. and they say you're hurting the feelings of white men. So now you're going to go. So to So shut the fuck up. That's what's going to happen. I mean, that's the the looking glass we're in right now. Through is that that that's happening that people who have been part of dominant culture and are in power are claiming harm because people are going are, are naming truth that's what this is about when some one more fucking person says to me oh i don't like political correctness a there's nothing fucking correct about our politics so that's a bunch of bullshit and b the whole bullshit around identity politics you cannot fight for freedom if you do not name the target identity in which you are a part so fuck you thank you for coming to my ted talk <laughs> <laughs> Sarah. Chelsea. When you say that By the Sound is a community-invested podcast, what does that mean for me? Um, you're getting paid, Chelsea. I'm getting paid? Yeah, and so are Aisha and myself. We value people's time at By the Sound, and we know that rent isn't cheap here in Seattle. So what did our donors get out of this arrangement? Well, the more donations we receive, the more episodes we're able to produce. Their support also funds our activities to build our local By the Sound community. This is another way in which we're becoming a community-invested podcast. Cool beans. How can listeners donate? They can visit bythesound.net and click the donate button. That's bythesound.net. Or they can go directly to patreon.com slash bythesound. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash by the sound. I'm pleased to have on our show today a guest who has demonstrated a commitment to justice for women and the environment. Barbara Klabitz is the director of a 2019 short documentary titled Women Talk Climate. Her past work has also included original research on the value of women in fishery conservation, an article on incarcerated people being used in sustainable seafood, and a recent Scientific American article about violence against and the trafficking of Native women as a result of fossil fuel extraction industries. Her film can be viewed for free using the link in our show notes. We will also include links to the articles mentioned, as well as a link to barbaraklabitz.com, where you can find a lengthy and impressive bibliography of her publicly available writings. I've had the pleasure to speak with Barbara before, and I am thrilled that she is able to be here today. Barbara, welcome to the show. Thank you. I happen to know that your oldest friends call you Barbie. Uh, So now that I've known you for literally dozens of weeks, um, may I do the same? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Now, your work seems very humanistic, um, almost uh, uh, sociological, perhaps, but is it Correct that your academic training is in the sciences. Yeah, so I have an honors Bachelor of Science in biology and Spanish. And then I did my master's work at UW. It's called a Master's of Marine Affairs. So it's technically an interdisciplinary science and policy degree made for people who want to be policy or management professionals in the ocean sector for companies or for government agencies. But my work at uh, UW for my master's was really published under the category of gender sociology. So I'm, I'm sure that some of our listeners will have never considered climate change as a gender issue per se. How is it that women 
are disproportionately or differently affected by global warming? So there's some global data sets um, that indicate that women are particularly vulnerable globally to the impacts of climate change. And one of those would be the World Health Organization because they manage data for uh, disaster relief. And they have some stats that indicate that women and girls are 14 times more likely to die in disaster-related events. Wow. That includes earthquakes, hurricanes, wildfires, all those things. And so you see kind of globally that there's this particular vulnerability. Why is that? That's a, a huge that's a huge question. <laughs> There's kind of compounding factors. Mm-hmm. So in some studies in India, they can look at how girls are not allowed to be taught how to swim. Oh. And so then they have higher drowning rates. Um, In the U.S., we might see those higher drowning rates in African-American communities as well because of the traditional um, horrible segregation of pools Mm -hmm. where we kept black kids from learning to swim. And then we kept the adults from having access to those swimming opportunities. Well, there's been a lot of uh, heartache I've seen uh, recently over the Australian wildfires, which appear to threaten an entire continent. We've also been increasingly aware of the effects uh, forest and wildfires here in the United States, even on this side of the Cascades. Is it correct that you have discerned a link between wildfires and domestic violence? That's not my original research. However, those studies actually come from the Black Saturday wildfires in Australia from 2009. When they sent out social services to kind of help communities come out of those wildfires, what they saw was very high rates of domestic violence as a result of the stress of those wildfires on couples and families, particularly In couples where there was no history of violence, which is something that really concerns me. We have kind of the outfall of what we think needs to happen after a wildfire. And I mean, what do you think needs to happen? Like people need to replant trees, right? But there's actually a social breakdown there of people not having coping skills and families not having um, pathways to resiliency Mm -hmm. and actually just having safe places for women and children to go. Mm -hmm. So when I saw those studies, it concerned me that in our state, these wildfires are getting worse every year. And what are we doing for women? Because this is happening here, but nobody's reporting on it. Nobody's collecting data on it. And it's happening in these... um, communities that experience wildfire, whether it's on a official, you know, policy brief or not. Mm -hmm. Is this the sort of information that you think could be gathered, that there there could be a methodological uh, approach to finding out if and how much this is occurring here? Yeah, I think we actually could gather the data pretty easily because the shelters that are in place are, are gathering very basic data. If we ask them to, they're incredibly underfunded and um, don't have the capacity to gather that because I have asked them a few about that before. We would really have to ask, you know, when we think about collecting gender data, what's important about it? 
Mm-hmm. Um, is it important to have those numbers? Uh, how how valuable is having those numbers? Because because of that um, study that said that this is happening in, in couples that haven't experienced domestic violence before, she's more likely to stay. And so... Um, there's just kind of a long-term vulnerability there of those communities um, of how they're coping with the repeated wildfires. Yeah. Um, Does this seem to be on the radar of our lawmakers at all? Um, I have spoken uh, with Hillary Franz about this. Mm -hmm. She's the commissioner of public lands. mm -hmm, So she's aware. Um, I presented her that research to her. Um, But, as far as it going anywhere, not that I know of. I mean, I talk about it um, to policymakers that I meet, but I, I can't guarantee that it's going anywhere. One of the more disturbing aspects of the increase in wildfires in the United States, particularly the American West, is how states like California are using inmate labor to fight fires, to what the inmates get potentially off of it is uh, some time off their sentences, but then they aren't necessarily able to translate that work experience into firefighting jobs afterwards in any uh, meaningful way. Now, in your work, you've discovered something similarly disturbing about fishing, yeah, uh, well, about seafood, but actually aquaculture, mm-hmm. fish grown in tanks. So I was watching 13th. Yeah. And there were folks packaging stuff on a line that were incarcerated. And what I saw on the screen was Seattle Fish Co., Seattle Fish Co. on the boxes. And I was like, what is that? I need to know. And I looked it up. I found them. It's a seafood distributor in Colorado who kind of traditionally imported seafood from Pike Place to Denver and then, you know, sold it to restaurants. But one of the products that they sell is rainbow trout. And rainbow trout has this certification, best aquaculture practices certification. So if you look at a package of rainbow trout, it's going to be like, you know, blue check. You're going to get kind of all the signs as a consumer that this is a great choice. But here's the problem. Those certification programs don't consider human rights. They don't have a look at worker rights at all. And so um, actually Colorado Correctional Industries is a private prison that's producing rainbow trout. So this isn't work happening in the state of Washington. This is there. There are, is there prison labor here in the state of Washington? Oh, definitely. Oh, okay. So, so um, just look up by state name, Washington Correctional Industries, and you'll find a website that kind of shows you the products that they offer. Um, and so I found this that this seafood was, you know, going to market in high end restaurants, mm-hmm. and um, people. You know, green consumers are like, awesome, very sustainable trout. Um, You know, it checks all the boxes for the consumer. But you're not asking who did this, who grew this fish. In this case, it, you know, was 
Colorado Correctional Industries, labor, they are profiting off of incarcerated people. And that pisses me off. And these are uh, private prisons. Yeah. So they're making all this money off of, um, you know, marking up an item like rainbow trout, because which you can do. And that's a big thing in the sustainable seafood world. We're only going to bother doing it because the consumer is going to pay more for it. So, I mean, fuck you to like make more money by marking up the seafood for this reason, right? Presumably paying less in labor. Um, (laughs) Exactly. That as well, which is so gross, but it, it is happening here. So I don't, I don't, um, know that we have any trout production here with Washington Correctional Industries. It's possible that some of our wheat products here are being grown um, with the labor of incarcerated folks. Uh, In addition, what these private prisons have is um, contracts with the state government. So if the department that you're in is hiring more people and needs more desks, they have to buy them from the private prison. It's a guaranteed contract. And then they set the rates for them. Uh, so, self-dealing. <laughs> yeah. So it's really gross. Um, and the state is kind of trapped in these contracts that they've made with these private prisons. But I mean, it's all kind of out there too. If you go on these websites, you can find what they're producing. And some of it is food for our school cafeterias. And w- how does this work out for the prisoners? Um, So that depends. Here in Washington State, um, the last I checked, it was 18 cents an hour um, on the wildfire fighting line. Um, But in the other sectors, I don't know. It's it's not that transparent. I mean, that money gets eaten up because they have to pay the prison to stay there anyways. So they, they... are released and then they have a bill to pay. So the money's non-existent. On the voter level, Washington state Democrats like myself um, are often relieved to see affirmations of our liberal values on election day. And our state's population seems to be described as green uh, just as often as um, it's described as blue. However, in 2016, uh, initiative I-732, which would have levied a carbon tax, failed by 18 percentage points. Two years later, in 2018, ballot measure 1631, which would have created a first-in-the-nation fee on uh, emissions of carbon dioxide, um, failed by 13 points. Um, in what was typically described as a blue wave election from coast to coast. So if we can't do it here, here, do you suppose the entire country is doomed politically? uh, Or are Washington voters simply not as liberal or as green as we keep telling ourselves we are on you know, writ large. Those two initiatives failed for different reasons. Okay. But the recent failure um, was due to the flooding of fossil fuel company money that obscured what was actually going to happen with the bill and was full of lies. 
So there was also something I saw from the advocacy side of 1631 that they weren't addressing the questions that people were asking. Because what did people want to know? Well, the ads were about this is this is going to be a tax at the gas pump. And a lot of people were very worried about that. And the advocacy groups did not answer that question directly. Mm. If they had, had just given them the facts, then maybe. But once you get people to a point of, yes, I do need to pay more for this personally, th- then you have that willingness to vote for things like that. And I think that we are really moving there. But when you surprise people with attacks, you're going to piss them off. Yeah. Well, particularly in, in this state, it seems, it does seem people are wise to educate <laughs> very proactively what sort of fiscal consequences there will be for any new fees in, in a place where, you know, our re- regressive taxation is so out of control. But it's it's been disheartening for me to see these initiatives fail when taxing carbon is a, a good in and of itself as an excise tax. But Sarah, this, it's not a failure. Mm-hmm. 1631 was not a failure. It wasn't? No. Okay. <laughs> Break that down. Um, so what's happened in the last couple years is uh, – well, 732 failed, from my understanding, um, from what people of color have told me, that there was not good representation in in what people wanted and what communities actually would have benefited from 732 because it was designed by economists, it was designed by white men from their perspective, and that perspective is, oh, it's just money. No. The understanding of what we need to do with climate policy now is that if we are actually to do justice here, then we need to turn that money into something useful. We don't just get to kind of balance it out in the state budget somehow. And so what 1631 did was actually create that pot of money and get buy-in from people who worked in labor unions, from people who worked in oil and gas, like the Shell Refinery up in Anacortes, and they are going to need support to transition to a green job. And so the intention was to take that money, have a commission oversee it, and allocate it towards groups like that. In addition, every sovereign tribe in Washington would have been eligible for $200,000 for a climate project. And so that's why you saw this kind of kick towards the end as President Fawn Sharp of the Quinault Indian Nation um, went around trying to get out the vote on the reservations around the state because um, she was trying to communicate to people like, this is actually an opportunity. This is good for tribes. And the fact that like tribes would have actually benefited from a state policy out of the environmental community who historically is just like, I'm going to buy your land and rope it off and you're not allowed anymore. And you're definitely not allowed to hunt or fish. We have a horrible history of doing things like that. So it looks like 1631 failed. But I think where people's hearts are about it these days in the environmental community it succeeded. I want to circle back to something you mentioned about I-732, issues of representation. So as white women, we ought to be considering our unearned privilege uh, anytime we engage in the work of feminism. Yeah. What ways have you found 
to mitigate the harm you might cause as a white woman in the movement to confront climate change? Well, uh, there's no guarantees that my work doesn't do damage. I try to be very intentional about, for example, the um, women climate stories that I gathered. Um, the short documentary film, Women Talk Climate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the stories that I gathered for that. Um, I was actually shocked at how personal those interviews got and how um, how much was kind of shared with me that I was like, I'm not sure I'm comfortable sharing this publicly on your behalf. But at the end of that experience, women had given me their stories and they wanted them shared. So um, I try to be very cautious with that and to also bring kind of a researcher's perspective of, I'm going to let you tell a story. I want to hear it from your perspective. And my intention with the stories is actually to publish them in their own words um, with minimal editing because the traditional research focus is I'm going to take these women's stories and I'm going to make some data out of them. Uh (laughs) Um, And I'm going to just tell the stories I want, but I don't feel that way about the stories that I gathered. I want um, women to be heard from their own voices, and I don't want to heavily edit that and control it. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the film, it was very en- enlightening for me to hear a Native perspective on how language itself is telling us information about our land and our climate. Can can you recall some of that? The way that these native language teachers are looking at the environment and kind of talking about that is mind-blowing. To really see native languages as this solution, not something that we package up and like shove down elementary school teachers' throats. Okay, like that's not the solution, but to fund native language schools and to support them to create their own kind of environmental research programs where they are going out and documenting changes. Because, you know, historically, when we collect climate data, I mean, who gets to collect it? So locally, um, you can go and have a look at like a Washington State uh, climate report and ask, okay, what species are they looking at? What climate phenomena are they looking at? What are agencies bothering measuring? Uh, And adjacent to that, like our agricultural extensions, um, those universities have, you know, apple breeding programs and things like that. So we're collecting all of this data. But here's the thing. Those are commercially viable products. Right. So when I'm talking to these women in Colville and I'm like, okay, tell me about basket weaving. Like, mm-hmm. and, and people think that's a joke, but it's not. I mean, grasses are very sensitive to the environment. So you can actually document environmental changes and predict um, wildfire uh, vulnerability by looking at those grasses and the information that the women have from their own hands um, is not considered. And I, 
I remember there being something in the film about the huckleberry crop and you know, that's not something that we think of as a major cash crop, but it was being identified, it seemed, as a leading indicator of change in an area by someone that would know that intimately. Yeah. I mean, huckleberries, any any berry, right? They're high in antioxidants. They're very nutritious. Um, they're really important in the summer months, and they're just drying up in some areas. And to lose those patches is really significant because, you know, as I mentioned, the environmental community has taken up big plots of very valuable natural resource and roped them off. So we've limited those opportunities for harvesting. What can gender policy experts like yourself offer, say, Washington state and local governments? What how could they benefit from the insight someone you might provide? I think environmental agencies in particular, anyone that manages natural resources, um, needs to consider gender because um, women actually control a lot of voting. <laughs> <laughs> women turn out more for voting. Yes, yes we do. Um, and surprise, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should work on that, <clears throat> on engaging women better. I think also there's been this kind of tendency to think our women voters or the women we want to do outreach to are only moms, and that's definitely not true. Um, so uh, there's an opportunity to kind of get more nuanced with how we're doing outreach. And gender is not exclusive to just looking at women. We can also look at men. So especially in the environmental area, if you want to do effective outreach on driving in this region, do you know how men feel about trucks? Have you looked at the data? I've, <laughs> I've, I've noticed they're rather popular. <laughs> <laughs> but to really capture like how men feel about these changes that you want to make to their daily lives, you can't just force change on people. And when you refuse to look at how gender intersects with our preferences and our environmental behaviors, then you're really kind of missing the boat. Well, as the mother of two sons, I really appreciate you acknowledging that men and boys are part of <laughs> yeah. the gender dynamic. You know, I think it may be even harder to kind of get funding and advocacy for work with men in this area. I don't know. There's just more kind of silence wrapped around it. And there are men uh, in Canada actually leading discussions on relationships, violence, sexuality, all those things. So there are some programs happening. But um, here in the U.S., masculinity puts up this like big roadblock in front of behavioral change that we need for environmental action. But it's so invisible to a lot of people. And then a lot of other people see it as a fixed trait. Yeah, <laughs> which is bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, I mean, there's change over the generations. Yeah. Um, but then still like some seemingly core things that are harder to resolve. But yeah, we, we struggle. <laughs> I've noticed um, society does struggle with how gender um, evolves. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, if I got to design a dream program here, um, working at the state policy level, like with the wildfire um, outcomes that we talked about, it would have multiple parts to it. It would not just be how do we help women um, post-violence? Because, you know, where does that problem come from, right? If the majority of the violence is being inflicted by men who need emotional support, who need um, who need somewhere to go, somewhere to talk, someone to talk to, um, we have to fund that. We have to be brave and we have to go into those communities and say like, Men circle up. Let's talk about this. Um, and I'm probably not the right person to do that, but somebody out there is. I've seen firsthand what a charismatic speaker you are. Is that part of the work you're doing now as an independent consultant is uh, uh, speaking appearances and such? I would love to do more. I think finding the right audience has been difficult. So I am I would be looking for platforms. I think the hard part is is the audience right? And sometimes people don't want to hear what I have to say. Yeah. So how long have you lived in Seattle? I grew up in Lakewood, just south of Tacoma, um, near the fort. And I have been in West Seattle for the last year and a half where we bought a house. And before that, I was in Queen Anne for seven years. What kinds of changes have been most notable to you over those decades? The development has just continued and continued. Um, Where I grew up near what's now known as JBLM, formerly Fort Lewis. Joint Um, Base Lewis McCord. mm -hmm. I used to ride horses out there. Uh, and there were miles and miles of trail. Um, but now it's kind of just this like sprawling continuation of development where um, people can't afford to live closer in. And so they just keep building more housing out there. Um, so places that, you know, looked like just forests before were, you know, from a developer's perspective, just undeveloped lots on uh, roads further out. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, the growth has just continued um, in areas very far from the city. Have there been any positive changes that stick out to you? Um, Any things that you can look at and think, wow, Seattle is, you know, we're better now. (laughs) Well, you know, I was a kid then, so I didn't know, um, know everything. But I think our... Our young people just being so engaged locally um, on local and global issues is just skyrocketed. I mean, when I was 15, I was uh, passing out flyers at high school trying to convince people to lower their meat consumption (laughs) due to the amount of missions. And (laughs) that was like 2001, you know, and I was like an alien (laughs) at school. (laughs) You were like, what the fuck, Barbie? (laughs) (laughs) But now it's like the cool thing to be like, I'm lowering my carbon footprint. Like, yeah. How about like 17 years ago? (laughs) You could have (laughs) listened. Yeah. And, you know, as as a lifelong politics nerd, um, I find that a bit frustrating Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's... um, 
I could have been so cool decades later. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Just born at the wrong time. Uh, I see another positive change. Um, The fact that we have learned from Ijeoma is enormous. Ijeoma Luo. Yeah. I mean, whose work is just pivotal. I think particularly for this region, because this state, this region is predominantly white. And for people to actually start having these conversations about race and about inequity is just huge because of how much the like white colonialism, the, you know, West, settle the West kind of spirit really has stayed here. And I include Oregon in that. I don't haven't spent a ton of time in Oregon, but Oh, I the- <laughs> And yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's uh these states were largely formed around public policies with a, a naked intention to exclude non-white people, depending yeah. on whatever's considered white exactly at the time, but you know, especially to exclude black people and indigenous people. Yeah. I mean, the Duwamish were fucking banned from the city of Seattle, like just like pushed out. Can, uh, Duwamish women uh, couldn't go on the streets. It's just disgusting. There was like literally laws <clears throat> in Seattle against it that, you know, Duwamish women could not go on the streets yeah. like after certain hours or. Yeah. I mean, so I grew up here and, you know, everyone passed eighth grade history because of me. Um, and I'm the only one who read the textbook. And, <laughs> okay, you know. Lisa Simpson. Just had- <laughs> And I remember, I remember some of the stories because that was really the first time that I was introduced to Native culture was eighth grade, Washington State history class. And it was, it was very, it was too short for me. I had a lot of questions, you know, because it was like, oh, we renamed this land and conquered this land and Lewis and Clark. You know, my dream project would be to rewrite that textbook because it's just fucked the way that um, we've been telling those stories to kids, um, Mm -hmm. to ourselves, and to kind of grow up. Uh, My mother's actually a Cuban immigrant, so to grow up in a Spanish-speaking household, but, um, you know, to to look very white, and uh, nobody knows, right? Like, the the Cuban part of my life is hidden because— People don't see it, and I don't have an accent. Um, okay, well, my family actually owned sugar plantations in Cuba, you know. So um, there was there was a big divide there as well, right? And they didn't want to talk about race, and they still don't really want to talk about race. Um, but to kind of grow up in this region where it was obvious that the majority of our state was white, um, because everywhere you go, it's like all white people in Washington, but nobody ever talks about it, you know? So we have to start looking at how that impacts how we make decisions. How does that change how we look at policy? So both my parents are doctors. I was raised um, in a fair amount of privilege, but I also heard my mother's stories of fleeing Cuba at five with the clothes on their back. I mean, they didn't leave Cuba with land. They didn't... Uh, Political refugees? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, 1960. So her and 41 first cousins um, and all these aunts and uncles fled Cuba with very little. 
and they had to start over with 10 kids when they only kind of spoke English. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I appreciate and understand like her stories of how difficult it was for them. Um, and while people may not assume that I might have those stories in my family, um, they kind of center my heart. What kind of city would you like to see Seattle become? Uh, bikeable, walkable. <laughs> I would like to see the waterways more accessible. Water is a reason that people want to live here is to see it and be near it. And a lot of our waterways have been kind of roped off or overgrown over. <laughs> um, so access to those riverfronts and lakes um, is really important for a population. It improves people's health and well-being and mindset. Um, so I would like to see kind of restoration of a lot of that access. And water makes people happy. All of those those things improve quality of life. And in my own little neighborhood, I am working, uh, learning about disaster resilience. And, you know, if I know which of my neighbors need needs meds, if I know which of my neighbors live alone, I can support people because we're just going to see more more natural disasters, more snowstorms, you know, whatever it may be. And I am... I'm growing my roots in that community, and um, I want to be a part of that kind of social fabric. From what I know about you, that seems like a quintessential Barbara Clavitz project, <laughs> combining the compassion and concern for your community with something super practical, and this, <laughs> you know... Like yeah, we we all kind of kind of vaguely know Mega Quake and is going to happen and, and yeah. such, but uh, it's like all things in the future, including global warming. It's, well, when the big one comes, is anybody going to come check on you? I mean, all systems are going to be down. Like building your neighborhood is really important. We yeah. can't just pretend like we're all transients here and, and we're moving again someday or we don't care about who's uh, next door. So, Yeah. Well, that is very thoughtful and practical and community-minded. Uh, I really appreciate that. Barbara Clavitz, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Chelsea, what are you grateful for this week? Oh, fuck. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you hate this, don't you? I do. I do. And, like, the thing is, I have been known to, like, keep gratitude journals. <laughs> like, I I do gratitude as, like, a practice. But when did we start doing this podcast? October? No. December? November? We first recorded November. in October 25th. Damn. There you go. Okay. First recording. Right. So we started recording in October. It's... Uh, mid-January now, mm -hmm. I have been in the throes of seasonal affective disorder yeah. for the bulk of that time. Mm -hmm. So, like, coming up with things that I feel grateful for is um, a bit of a challenge right now. Ask me again in March. Okay. Uh, gratitude will be suspended. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I'm grateful like. that Chelsea gives me advice on bras and clothing. Thank mm. you, Chelsea. You're so welcome. It's been helpful. Anytime. Sarah, what are you grateful for? 
I hate doing this because it's like super fucking something like that. That was your idea, Sarah. I know. I, 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 no, 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 no. I hate, I hate what you're about to do, which is what I'm about to do, which is to say, I'm grateful for the two of you. Okay. Wait a fucking minute. I, I know. Like that. Have feels... we ever done one where you aren't grateful for the two of us? Like, I feel she, like this is, oh, uh, no, she has there. You thanked Georgia and who the fuck is Karen the other and one? Georgia, Karen, yeah. the first mm-hmm. one. So oh, right. We right, don't right, always right. get thanked. Okay. So I just feel like, continue. well, <laughs> okay no no okay. i want i like you know, I think no, this, this is, is actually my thing lame. this is my thing i have a hard time accepting um gratitude just and like and love yeah all right so this is gonna be a, a teachable moment okay where sarah's gonna express her gratitude for us and we're gonna accept it Get yeah it, just gonna take it in carry on here we go um this wasn't about you <laughs> <laughs> No, it was a lie. Um, it, it is about you. Um, no, you guys keep showing up. You keep, like, when we started, I, like, it's a big deal for a podcast to reach nine episodes. There's, like, it's, they're notorious for, like, really crapping out after seven or eight. Like, there are so many thousands and thousands of podcasts that mm. have just made a few episodes. And the thing is, like, you guys, you, you keep coming back. And the guests keep agreeing. Yeah, that's wild. And huh? the, I mean, I've even had people like st- strangers ask me now if, if, you know, I want them as guests, you know, and like, it, it feels very unlikely um, that we would be able to keep this going this long. I think it bodes very well. And I'm just like, I don't know, everything is, is about this is better than I dreamed. So... Uh, and that has everything to do with the two of you. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> no, you're on. This is Who said I, this was about you? This is so fun, Sarah. <laughs> I genuinely like, I just, I am, it is, there's something very life giving to me about this. And so I appreciate your invitation to be a part of this amazing podcast that I fucking think is funny as hell. Although it's hell funny, it's just funny. I don't know if hell's funny. Oh, hell has got to be much funnier than heaven. Fucking funny. Oh, heaven's boring. Heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. Oh, that's good. That's good. So didn't that feel good? Like a like a what? Just accepting the gratitude and and care and love that we are sending you our way. I want to say yes. I know you don't have to. I have a lot of like uh, journal about it later. Yeah, I'll journal about it. Just journal about it later. Just know that it's there, and when you are ready to accept it, it's always there. It's not going anywhere. Okay. This has been By the Sound, your community invested podcast. By the Sound is an Ahoy Hoy Media production. Ahoy Hoy!